leading a double life rarely ends well. Now, sure, there are occasional cases, right, like Santa Claus, right? I mean, as a kid, you naturally wonder, as my children started to do this year, what does Santa do in the off-season, right? What is the double life he lives when he's not doing the gifts thing around December? So by now, you've seen the pictures of Santa tropical summers at the beach with a fruity cocktail in hand, and we're familiar with that picture of Santa and his double life. We have you might have seen Santa speeding on his moped dangerously, uh, plays the harp. I don't know, this guy's got multiple lives. Uh, so maybe Santa, for every double agent like 007, there's also a Arnold Schwarzenegger in his wonderful film, True Lies, uh, who learns it's never a good idea to hide a double life from your spouse. Right, uh, which he also, by the way, managed to learn in real life this last year. <laughs> uh, it's just not a wise idea. I, and then maybe, maybe Batman can live a double life successfully. This is one person I'm thinking of. This is getting ridiculous here. All right, Batman, the superhero on the one hand, wealthy philanthropist Bruce Wayne on the other hand. But does that really end well for Batman? I don't think so. He never ends up with the girl. He can never commit to her, right? The life of Batman is too dangerous, so I will sacrifice a relationship with you for the sake of saving Gotham. It never ends either for any of us, Batman, because uh, somehow between Adam West, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, and now Christian Bale, there is a never-ending supply of Batman. It just is not going to end. I don't know who's going to be next, but uh, Justin Timberlake? <laughs> just a guess. I don't know. More often, history has been, and experience has been quite unkind to leading a double life. One life, Frederick Ingalls. He was a capitalist partner in a highly successful British textile company. At the same time, unbeknownst to his colleagues and employees, he was co-writing the Communist Manifesto and fomenting anti-capitalist uprisings in Eastern Europe. <laughs> Two very different lives, and it didn't end well for him. One life, another one, Robert Hansen. He was a United States FBI agent, devout family man, a Catholic churchgoer. In his second life, he, well, liked to experience some sexual deviancy. Uh, he then began selling state secrets to the Soviet Union, for 20 years, using much of the money he earned to finance his favorite local stripper. That did not end well for him. His wife divorced him, and she divorced him while serving a, he was serving a life sentence at a maximum security prison in Colorado. More recently, a gentleman by the name of Ted Haggart, yes, a preacher, pastor, who in one life was the founder and the head of Colorado's massive new Life Church grew from 22 people to 14,000. He's married with five kids. But although those closest with him have said that he, he stopped attending small group, his account, accountability partner kind of saw less of him, no one really asked him if he was leading a second life. And he was, using drugs, including crystal meth, engaged in deviant sexual behavior himself, which turned into homosexual behavior. 
his double life is not quite ended, but is ending poorly. When we hear these stories, we have a tendency to distance ourselves from such people. As I pointed out though last week, and as we see the three degrees of deception in Paul's letter in the book of Colossians, we probably should not do that so quickly. Because it starts with, as we see in Paul's letter, sort of adopting a half-truth. We call it Facebook advice. Whatever works, no worries. It's kind of the things we adopt in our lives. We buy into it a little bit more, and we watch it work a little bit more to the point where we start to build a life system around it. Only to watch it crumble, as all man-made systems do. And Paul tells us here in Colossians. It doesn't work, ultimately. At some point, it falls apart. And then you're faced with a choice. You can search. You can try to cling out for real truth that can actually change you. Or you can just indulge and say, I mean, I give up. I'm just going to do what I want and indulge and lead a secret life of sin. You might object, well, I don't, I don't lead communist uprisings, right? Yeah, you might not sell state secrets either, or use crystal meth, or even cheat on your spouse. But, man, drinking has become a pretty regular thing in your life. Nightly binging on food. On the opposite end of the spectrum, caring about your body so much that you can't help but you exercise constantly and constantly. And that's your secret indulgence. could be a virtual web life. And I don't mean that, like having geeky avatars building cities online. I don't know what that is, but, but just indulging. Like you are a different person when you hop on Facebook, etc. Could be codependent relationship. I'm going to take a break from God and have these other things. Author and pastor John Ortberg noticed himself teetering on the edge of this kind of deception. Yeah, I'm just going to take a break from God and do my own thing. He was teetering on that deception before he was either an author or pastor. And he sat down with a longtime friend in his church and said, I do not want to have any secrets any longer. No more secrets. So he goes on to say, I, I told this friend everything I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies. He says, my cowardice. How I hurt my wife with my anger. I told him about my history with money, my history with sex. I told him about deceit and regrets that keep me up at night. I felt pretty vulnerable doing all this because I was afraid I might lose that connection with him, that, that friendship. And Much to my surprise, he didn't even look away. And I'll never forget his next words, which were, John, I have never cared for you or respected you more than I do right now. So what separates a guy like John Ortberg from the previous three examples I shared with you guys? Two things. One, John didn't get caught. Right? All those other guys got caught. But he came clean before he got to that last stage where he was indulging secretly and then enslaved to those indulgences. Why did he not get to that stage? He admitted his weakness, his sin, to a person. A person. The antidote to third degree deception, this idea that we can just take a break from God, do our own thing, but really we get into this secretive kind of sin, is the antidote is living Christ wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play. But that starts with where you worship His church. Now I really think in the case of a guy like Ted Haggard, the preacher guy, uh, maybe even the case of Robert Hansen, the FBI churchgoer, at some point they probably confessed to God. 
God, this is wrong. And he even asked him for help. But when you're caught in a double life of secret sin and you're ensnared in that, all of us probably know that feeling to some extent. It's hard to get out through confessing simply to an invisible God. I think God has given us a way out through persons, his people. The Apostle Paul calls the church the body of Christ. Many of us who've been in church for a while have kind of taken that phrase for granted, the body of Christ. Stop to think about it with me. What is the one thing missing about God or about Jesus on this earth? What's the one thing missing? His body. Right? Was here. God, through Christ, indwelled on this earth and then was resurrected from the dead. That's when the church started. Not a coincidence. Body of Christ. What he's saying there by putting that in his words, the primary way people will see and experience me on earth is through the church, the body, the tangible body. Real tangible people with eyes, ears, noses, and in some cases, brains. Now you all have brains. When Ortberg confesses secret sin and weakness, he does so to Christ's tangible representative on earth. And what does that bring? When a person does that, what does it bring? It brings relief. right? Because he's no longer the only person on the earth sharing this burden. Somebody else has it now. Somebody else can share this with me. And he also gets to audibly hear Christ remind him, I forgive you. But you've never experienced that. What a joy that is. What a comfort that is. And it is incredibly hard. So it's no coincidence that when advocating living Christ as the antidote to slipping into the secret life of sin, Paul starts with living Christ with his church. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 Verses 15 through 17. This is God's Word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, how do we live Christ with His church? And I'm going to explain a few ways to do that. Live relational peace, who is Christ, number one. Live submitted to the Word of Christ. Live singing the Word of Christ. And finally, live your gifts for the name of Christ. That's our little roadmap this morning. Here we go. First, Live relational peace, who is Christ. Read with me verse 15 again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Why does Paul begin here with verse 13, with verse 15? Basically, he begins with relational tension, relational conflict. I think Paul puts himself in the shoes of those who've been considering or actually been taking a break from God. Think about it. In your life, whenever you've done that, taken a break from God, one of the last things you want to do is be around other Christians who remind you of Him. He recognizes that perhaps there's a reluctance 
to put themselves in position where other Christians might be around, right? Maybe to judge them or to have their eyes on them or whatever might be perceived. So on the one hand, Paul's not going to say, hey, just come. Come on into church. You don't have to say anything. You don't really have to even get involved. He doesn't want to say that. It's not what church is all about. But he also recognizes the fear when you're caught in that life. I, don't, I do not want to be around other people who know Christ and just Christians and all that. Preachers. So right away, he addresses the issue of how to deal with people, how to deal with tension, how to deal with conflict. So the first experience of really investing oneself in community will also be the last. He wants us to be equipped to handle the tension and conflict which necessarily accompanies genuine relationships. So Paul, he gives us probably the most important strategy to having relational peace, peace between you and I. Right there in verse, six, verse 15, it's very simple. Be thankful. He's connecting this with the idea of having peace in the body of Christ. The best defense against perceived offenses, slight offenses, offenses resulting from thinking someone else is offended at you, offense at someone else being offended at someone you know, and you think they're offended at you, you know what I'm talking about. It gets complicated. (laughs) Offense, tension. You know. The best way to diffuse that is thankfulness. Is recognizing the grace of God that is other people. In other words, recognizing that grace that is being adopted into God's family. Jesus Christ. In fact, the recognition of that grace is recognition of any grace is code for thanksgiving. In fact, the word thanksgiving, uh, Eucharisto, you might know that from taking communion if you went to an Anglican church, Eucharist, Eucharisto, thanksgiving. Uh, in that is the word, Greek word grace, charis, Eucharisto. So it comes from that word. The idea of thankfulness necessarily means I recognize a grace in my life, a gift from God in my life. Paul, at one point, calls Jesus our peace because he came to make peace between us and God vertically and between us and other people horizontally. So those who trust Christ are all one family that you get to be a part of. But Paul, he's a sinner. He's a weak person like us, you know, vulnerable to the he said, she said's. What does he think of me? Why does she give me the stink eye when I come to church? Why won't that person shake my hand? Jim never talks to me after church. What is the deal with that? The thanksgiving for Paul isn't theoretical. It's not just ideal churchiness. But it's necessary for real people and real relationships. So Paul actually does this. He actually thanks God for people intentionally. Turn with me real quick in your Bibles to chapter 4. Just got to turn over real quick, verses 7 through 14. Listen to how Paul ends this letter to the Colossians. He says, Tychius will tell all of you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you 
They will tell you everything that has taken place. And what about Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes, do you welcome him? Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You see what he's doing here? He is thanking God for these people in front of the Colossians. And he's not just doing it sort of in a rote way, like, thank God for Craig. Thank God for Madhavi. Thank God for Jeff. Thank God for Bianca. You know, he's not, he doesn't, he's specific. He is built in this habit. That's how we see it at the end of all Paul's letters. It's a response to grace. It's thanksgiving. Paul is feeding the Colossians and himself further evidence of the grace that is God's family, right? With actual names. We would be wise to do likewise. This week, I just tried to do this. Thank God for just people in the church going through the names of people in our church and in my mind. And man, I tell you, it really does produce a sense of, of love where there might be tension between myself and another person because I know I'm a sinner. Man, it just diffuses it. Man, thank you, Lord, for that person. I appreciate how they love people, how they serve people. Theologian and, and true martyr of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said, he who loves his dream of a community more than the actual Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Hear that again. The person who loves the dream of a community. The ideal of a community more than the actual community destroys the latter even though his personal intentions might be honest and earnest and sacrificial. Why is that? Because the subtle lie is that I do love the church, just not this church. I love the church, just not these, pe- these particular people. But really, there really is only one. Because every church you visit, every church you go to, has a, has a particular odor. It's got a particular fragrance, <laughs> but it's got a particular B.O. as well. <laughs> All right? And we have it. We're in, we're in need of spiritual deodorant. I don't know. I, I didn't think this through. All right, but it's particular people who are messed up, who are in need of grace. So giving thanks for real people. Key to living Christ, to living relational peace. Secondly, How do you live Christ with the church? Paul tells us, live submitted to the Word of Christ. He says, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Jesus did this Himself. Jesus listened to and received instruction from human teachers as they taught from the Word, even though He Himself was the Word of God. He was 12. His parents couldn't find Him. Where did they find Him? It says in Luke 2, after three days... Jesus' mom and dad found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. He's God. Later it says that he grew in wisdom and stature. One interesting comment that I get less than people are thinking of of it, if you know what I mean. I think people are thinking of this more often than they say it, but sometimes they do, that people will often say, I wonder if that message applies to me. If God's Word is presented and it's featured in a message, in a sermon. It applies to you every time. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It is useful for teaching, 
correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This reminds us why God's Word needs to be submitted to in community. Why does God's Word matter for you and I? Why does it matter so much that we live out and submit to Christ's Word as a community? Because it prepares us in every way for every good work. It changes us. In a premarital counseling that I have with couples, in the first session, I address with them the question, what's going to keep you together when the storms come? What's going to keep you together? Because when the pressure comes and tension arises, those things that bother you by the other person, oh, they come out in bold relief, highlighted in a way they weren't before. And you desperately want to change that in a person, especially early on in marriage, because you have so much at stake in how that other person lives their life. There's so much at stake. You're living with them, especially early on in marriage, because you wonder, oh my gosh, is this my future? Is this going to happen 10, 15, 20, 25? Is this going to happen the rest of my life? And that's true, admittedly to a lesser degree, but true of any meaningful relationship. How do you encourage change without controlling the other person? Without pointing it out to them all the time and making them change? But likewise, how can you keep being vulnerable unless a person is slower to pass judgment or starts being there for you more, right? Leaving you hanging less. How can you keep being vulnerable when the person's not really willing to listen, but they're very willing to speak? See that tension? You kind of, one sense, don't want to keep going if the person can't change, but you can't change the person. The Word of God. That's the changing. When you and I submit to the powerful Word. On the one hand, you can have confidence that change will happen. That everything needed for real change, for godliness, for for becoming more like Jesus, for being a better friend is in here. But you don't risk exasperating the person. Right? To the point where they're exhausted with you and the relationship. That's awesome. When you and I submit to the Word, we can have that confidence. We don't have to bring every little thing up. The major problem is we often dismiss. Within the first five or ten minutes, we dismiss the presentation of the Word of God. Ah, this is not relevant to me. This is not applicable to my life. I'll just wait for next week. Scripture here tells us to let the Word of God dwell in us. To live in us. Much of the time, then, as we think about that analogy Paul is using here, dwelling in us, we want to let God's Word the front door. And sometimes God's Word is very obvious. There's a promise that sort of helps us trust God more. That's really needed. There's a conviction of, of a way we've rebelled against God that's really obvious. Like, yeah, that's for me. Or there's a truth about God that we desperately need to learn. It comes through the front door. But not, you're not always going to get Scripture through the front door. It's not always going to be obvious. To get a front door scripture, all right? Sometimes you have to find a way to sneak God's word through the window, the back door, through the air vents, right? Through the attic. Because it isn't just going to present itself as, oh, this is so clear what I need to do now. Key being to find a way to let it in, to get it in so that you can let it dwell there, so it can 
change a few things so we can move some furniture around, rearrange some things, right? Get rid of the old stuff in the fridge, stuff that smells in your life. Give you an example. I got off my keister this year and made a plan for reading the Bible. Uh, I find that it's very difficult for me to read the Bible every day if I don't, do not make a plan. I say I will, but I don't. So I made a plan. I got on uh, this Read the Bible thing on our website, which you can visit. And I was going to read through all the narrative parts of Scripture, basically the story. So beginning with Joshua, you know, Esther, things like that, all the way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And this last Wednesday, I'm reading in 2 Samuel 6. All right? This is where King David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. This is like the presence of God in this ark to Jerusalem. And it's a big celebration because it hasn't been you know, in its rightful place for a while and everyone's enjoying themselves. They're dancing. David's feeding people with sumptuous food, right? Dining, all that kind of stuff. And basically encourages them at the end to take leftover to their house. All right, go bless your household. And then it says, 2 Samuel 6.20, David returned to bless his household. All right, so I read that Wednesday morning. How can I bless my household? But for me, on this particular day, this is not a scripture that goes to the front door. It's not immediately obvious for me because it's a particular day in which I knew due to various circumstances I'd be very busy and not see my household very much. It's a great day, though. Some real God moments, some meetings I have with folks and uh, get some work done. Rolling along, I'm even ahead of schedule, thinking maybe I'll get to see my household. I could do something. I could love them well. Then I hit a major speed bump, then another frustrations, uh, mostly at myself, until suddenly I'm about 90 minutes behind schedule, getting home just in time to, you know, stuff some food in my face, then we have community group. And I'm thinking on the way home, okay, the one thing I did was keep thinking, okay, how am I going to bless my household? How am I going to bless my household? I got like 10 minutes, maybe 20 to be at home. And it when I'm at home, I want to rest at this point. It has been exhausting. I'm sweating. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think my air conditioning's not working. Something's going on. So uh, I'm going home, and I'm thinking, Lord, please bless me with silence. <laughs> That's what I want. It's a me time. And I walk in, and Katie reading to two bathed children who are just, who are just calm, serene. I mean, clearly, they have uh, experienced some angelic takeover of their bodies. This is not the real Mason and Gage. And, and she had clearly read that scripture about blessing the household because she said, you know what, Ryan? You really, just, just eat your dinner. Go eat your dinner. I'm going to finish reading with them. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. I'm like, hey, I got my me time. Here it is, just quiet. And that's when it hits me. This is your opportunity. Katie and the boys just finished reading. And I have fr- two friendly, talkative family members and one who's less talkative around a lot of people, but if he gets you by himself, he's going to talk your ear off. All right? And I said, you know what? I want silence, but I need to bless my family. I've got to let God's word into my life somehow. So I said, guys, I want to hear about your day. And just encourage them to come to the table, started asking questions, and that's how I spent the last 20 minutes when we had to roll off to community group. Find a way to get that word in you. It's not always easy, but if you keep asking, Lord, how can I do this? How can I obey this? How can I follow what you're saying in my life? Let it dwell in you. Submit to it. Finally, third way to live Christ with this church. Live singing the word of Christ. Christ ended his longest, his final teaching with the disciples before he went to the cross. 
He ended it by singing a hymn. We're told in Matthew 26, Mark 14, the hymn that he most likely sung was the last part of the Jewish halal, which was basically Psalms 115 through Psalms 118. And this would have been amazing to be around, to be with Christ as he sang these particular psalms. Because we would have heard Christ sing about how he would keep his promises, keep his vows to suffer for, for salvation in Psalm 116. We would have heard him sing ultimately how he would triumph despite rejection in Psalm 118. We would have heard him sing about calling all nations to praise Yahweh and his great love for his people in Psalm 117. To hear Christ basically sing the fulfillment of what he's going to do. Awesome. And here we have Paul encouraging such singing. It's translated here in verse 16, what we read before, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. But another way to translate this, an equally valid way grammatically in the Greek to translate this, is like this. This is from the New American Standard Version, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you see the difference there? See the difference? In the first one, it's talking about teaching and admonishing each other just you know, with the word of God, kind of like a sermon, a message. But the second one is saying we're to teach and admonish one another with singing. And I prefer this one because... When you consider Ephesians 5.19, which is basically a parallel. Hang with me here on this. Ephesians 5.19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we see this addressing of one another, speaking to one another, just like teaching one another in psalms and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the whole Lord with all your heart. Colossians and Ephesians, very similar. So I think Ephesians 5.19 lines up well. Colossians 3.16, the idea of we teach and admonish one another with songs. Songs, in other words, are used to teach us, even correct us, admonish us. In a great book, his book, Worship Matters, worship pastor Bob Coughlin goes at length to point the fact out that musical worship is discipleship. And you might not think of it that way. Right? I'm just singing. I'm experiencing God. I am getting caught up in God, or I'm just, you know, I enjoy it's actually discipleship going on. Teaching is going on. Songs do a fabulous job of this. We know this with, with children. If you have a nephew or a niece or you have your own children, you see this. They learn best through what? Songs. When I was going through seminary, I had a good friend who was a worship pastor. But he was debating whether he should be a worship pastor. He was thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, I don't know. And so for a class, we had to read a biography. And what we decided to do was, read biographies of the Wesley brothers, all right? Uh, John and Charles Wesley, a big part of this 19th century revival in Great Britain and uh, basically the founders of what we know as Methodism. You know, if you've heard of Methodist churches. So we, I, I was going to read the one on John because he was the preacher teacher. That's kind of what I wanted to do. And he wanted to read Charles Wesley who wrote 6,000 hymns. It's hymns like for a thousand tongues to sing. Hymns like, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hymns like, we all know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But do you know any of John Wesley's sermons? Do you know their titles? And that's what my friend basically said. After finishing the books, my friend said, look, I'm going to keep on leading worship and writing songs because people are much likely to remember good theology if it comes from a song, if it comes from a sermon. 
you know what? That's <laughs> it's true. He's exactly right. I mean, sermons often have a lot of good stuff, content, but sometimes they lack that emotional connection, that emotional engagement that can reach a listener's heart, but songs have that, don't they? So he said, man, I'm going with music. People are going to remember it. Of course, I still replied, yeah, but in my case, uh, I can't do music because people may never, again, possess the ability to hear after I sing. (laughs) Uh, And plus, I said, you know, I don't, ha- I don't have to take the time to rhyme my sermons. I mean, can you imagine? That would stink like vermin. My grandfather's name is Herman. I need to get the sermon back on track with a GPS like German. Ah, <laughs> oh, terrible. Sound booth, give me a beat. I'm going to keep going. No? I'll stop. All right. We're going to do this so in a moment. Discipleship through music. Disciple one another through song engaging our hearts and our minds with truths. I'm going to encourage you to pay attention to what you are singing and what you are singing to others as well. For instance, you're going to be, in a moment, reminding each other of truths from Isaiah 40, that strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, that this God we worship is an everlasting God. While things change in the universe, He never changes he doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. And in fact, He will lift us up on wings like eagles. We're going to get to pray truth from Psalm 19 that everything we say, Lord, make everything I say, every thought I have in my heart be pleasing to You in Your sight. We're going to pray truth. We're going to fight off deception with truth. We're going to fight off the deception there are greater pleasures in this earth than God by singing from Psalm 84. It is better to have one day in your courts, Lord, one day in your presence than a thousand days elsewhere with these puny pleasures and fleeting joys. I'm going to finish here, but I want to plead with any of you who are here this morning who have understandably adopted these little Facebook philosophies, these little half-truths in our lives Maybe you've even begun to build your life around them. But you're finding that it's failing. And you're teetering on, on should I live a secret life of self-indulgence? Should I just, just live my life just doing what I want? I want to encourage you to drag yourself into the light, the light of fellowship with God's people. Find a community group. Serve in ministry with others. Grab someone here afterwards. Talk with them. Start to be known. Start to live Christ with His church so you can experience the peace of Christ between you and God. Real change from submitting to the Word of Christ and the joys of singing the Word of Christ with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for giving us the gift of one another, of the church. One of the hardest things to do, but one of the things I think we almost have to do, and we see it here in in, in Your Word and the pattern here in Colossians that we find ourselves wanting to be secretive, to live these lives of secret self-indulgence. And I think it's tempting. We've all either been there or we teetered on that, Lord, to drag ourselves into fellowship. Everything in us wants to say, no, Lord, I want to be on my own. I want to be with people who don't care if I indulge in these things. Who? That's why you've given us the church, though. People who not only will keep us accountable, but will love us, who recognize that it's only by God's grace 
that I'm even part of this family and by nothing I've done. It's only by Jesus' work on the cross and his love for me that I've even changed at all. So Father, help us. Help us be thankful for the grace that is one another. Help us just in our own lives when we come to church and we hear preaching from God's word, be willing to submit to it. Be willing to listen, to let it dwell in our hearts, to think it through where it doesn't make sense at first or how it applies to our life. Help us look for ways to fit it in, to get it in that door. Finally, Father, help us not give up singing to one another. The joy of being in each other's presence and just growing together through worshiping you in song. Lord, all of our days, help us not give that up. I thank you for these people. I don't say that enough. I thank you for each of these people, each specific person here, who is a blessing to me and a blessing to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.